Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business, and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Verisage Institute colleague, Ed Kless. On today's show, folks, we are talking about who protects the consumer more, regulation or reputation. Hey, Ed. Uh, reputation. Next show. <laughs> I should have said, Ed, uh, <laughs> regulation or the market. But it okay. didn't have that alliteration, so. Right. No, I know what, you're big into alliteration. Yeah, Mind over matter, yeah, you know. know rising you know. on purpose. What can rising I say? on purpose. Yeah. yeah. Um, but this is an important concept. I know we've talked around this, certainly when we did permissionless innovation with Adam Thier. We've talked about it with Mary Ruart, especially when you talk about the FDA. Countless bonus shows we brought this up, but I just thought it would be really useful to dedicate a whole show to it, kind of dive deep. Um, and and explore this issue because I think it's really important. Oh, it's it's critically important, especially because, as you said, in bringing up Adam Thier is a great place to go uh, with regard to permissionless innovation. You know, the more and more regulations that get passed, the more challenging it becomes for innovators to innovate without permission. And I think that's a big problem. Although, you know, the good news, I think we talked about this on a bonus episode previously, that the number of, of VCs uh, and unicorns are up in the last two quarters, which I think is the most fantastic economic news I've heard in a long time. Yeah. But it's it's still a concern. We still have to we have to be careful about this overregulation uh, on things. And yeah, I'm gonna come down on the libertarian side and say yeah, I'd like to see almost all regulation go away. Maybe most, maybe all of it. Maybe just flat out all of it. But we'll we can explore those concepts. And, and today's show was really dedicated to. There's going to be a mix. What what is the most successful at it? Which which of these two things does what it is ultimately intended to do, which is protect the consumer and make sure that the quality of products, services, knowledge is con- constantly increasing? Right. With the least harm. Right. I mean, with the least harm. Yeah. yeah. N- nothing's ever going to be perfect. And we got to stop comparing it to some utopia. And, and we'll definitely talk about specific cases today that prove that. But there's that famous quote from Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. It's not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own self-interest. And this is the whole invisible hand concept, right? Not their greed, folks, their self-interest. Big difference Mm -hmm. between greed and self-interest. And we've talked about that. But what about fraudulent practices, shoddy, unsafe products or services this concept of asymmetric information, you know, how do we really know our doctor's not a quack, right? Is it good enough just to look on the license of the wall? We never asked for the transcripts of medical school, even though somebody graduated at the bottom. And, you know, these criticisms are valid and we need to address them. The question is whether regulation is a cure that's worse than the disease of all of these costs of shoddy products and unsafe drugs and all of that. And I thought it would be useful to give, to start just kind of with the history of regulation, uh, 
Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's only been around 120 some odd years, at least at the federal level. Um, and, you know, uh, situ- it's usually prompted by some type of event. Rachel Carlson's Silent Spring, right, brought brought on the uh, EPA. Upton Sinclair's novel, The Jungle, brought upon, you know, the Federal uh, Drug Administration. Um, food, Ralph, and drug, food and drug, yeah. food, food and drug, yes, thank you. Ralph Nader, uh, you know, unsafe at any speed, the attack on General Motors Corvair, Brought up, brought about the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. I can't keep up with these alphabet soups, and all of these things quickened after the New Deal. Half of the thirty-two agencies that were in existence in 1966, half of them were created after FDR's election. So FDR accelerated it. I mean, we had the ICC in 1898. We had the Sherman Antitrust Act in 1890. But this really exploded during the FDR uh, years. And then 21 new agencies were established from 1966 until the following decade. And this was, you know, Nixon's EPA and the Consumer Product Safety and uh, all these other agencies. And a lot of them are not concerned with specific industries like the ICC was just for railroads. Um, These have broad sweeping authority. And so it's just interesting to kind of go back and look at the growth of this. And you can kind of chart this when you look at the federal code of regulations. The amount of regulations has just increased. Uh, I, I mean, I've got a stat here that I, I don't even believe. I had to check this several times. In the first year that they codified all the federal regulations, it was 1938. It was 18,193 pages. In 2017, it was 186,000. Yeah, so ten, ten tenfold times. increase. Yep, it's a, a, a was it a logarithmic increase actually? Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it is amazing. So um, it, it's really interesting. So what I thought we'd do is c- kind of talk about the regulation side of this first, and give all some as talk about some of the examples from some of these different regulatory agencies, how they go about uh, protecting the consumer or try to protect the consumer, and then spend maybe the other half talking about, okay, what about reputation? How does the market handle, um, you know, these these uh, unsafe products and, and things like that? And what are some of the forces in the market that regulate as well? I mean, market forces are regulatory in nature to some extent, right? Competition, prices, mm-hmm. quality, all of these different things, even signaling, branding, um, they're all a form of regulation. Well, let's and let's take two steps back. One is to to note note that the original meaning of regulation was to make regular, to st- standardize, if you will, to 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 develop a a standard for uh, under which nothing should fall. So, like when 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 uh, the the Constitution talks about making interstate commerce regular. Right or regulating interstate commerce, it, it that's what it means. It means there shouldn't be tariffs between the states. That there should be no. Right. N- n- that we effectively created a free trade zone among yep. among the thirteen states. That's without, that's what that without was. a thousand page act, <clears throat> right? Without a thousand page act. So that's that 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 was the whole point of it. And I think people misunderstand that. And then of course there's the famous Wickerby Philbin decision, which we've talked about in a number of cases. But just look that one up because it's just c- continues to be insane. But the other 
Um, I, I just want to share another analogy that I think is helpful because the way that I approach this is that this is a, either an a, an analogous to or a div, a, 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 uh, a it, it comes from the same thought as Bastiat's concept of the law, and that is that the law bubbles up from the bottom. We, it's 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 the norms to which all of us agree. I we, I don't go around killing people, <laughs> murdering people, not because there's a law in the state of Texas that says murder is illegal, but because we've agreed that societally as a norm, it's absolutely the wrong thing to do. So I, there's no there's no necessary requirement the state of Texas passes a law against murder to prevent me from murdering. Right. But legislation is is really the imposition of stuff from the top down and the way it used to work is it used to be that the bottom up was then codified and that's why we called it the law but since all of these regulatory agencies have come about we're seeing more and more top down insistence on we create this law and move it down but the great example and i i my son sean is learning how to drive he'll get his license sometime in december uh, that and I like to explain this to him this way, and some of his friends, by the way, too, is if you want to understand the difference between the law and legislation, go get in the car and go down 75, which is the main thoroughfare north-south here that goes from from Allen, Texas, down into Dallas. Get in the right lane. I'm sorry, the left lane, and do the speed limit. <laughs> right. Mm. Do, drive. I think it's 70 miles an hour. Drive at the speed limit in the left lane and it will not be long. I promise you it's less than five minutes before you'll have somebody running up behind you, flashing their lights, honking their horn, then finally pulling out. And as they go by, you giving you the bird. The bird. Yeah, they won't <laughs> right? be told. Then, <laughs> they won't be towing you. They'll be pushing you. That's right. So, so <clears throat> the, the norm is that that is at least you, you'll go at least nine miles over the speed limit, probably more. That's the norm. In fact, you doing the speed limit in the left lane is dangerous. Right. It's more yeah. dangerous for you. And you're causing more danger by doing that than you are by obeying the legislation. And I think that see that's the, that's the piece. And I think reputation and regulation is the same kind of thing. Right. The reputation is the bottom up this. What are the norms? Whereas the regulation is, well, this is what it will be. But we all know that that's not how things operate anyway. Right. Yeah. So. One, one's natural, the kind of like natural law. One's kind of arbitrary, like like legislation of the 70 mile per hour speed. Why 70? Why not 80? Why not 65? I mean, it's because arbitrary. because if you made it 80, people would go 89. You know, it's it's right. like the, no, the norm is is nine miles above the posted number. That's right. the norm. Yeah. For yeah. the for the for the minimum that you do in that lane. The yep. minimum. I mean, think about it. That's the norm. I, throughout all 50 states as I'm, I'm going to say. <laughs> so if the speed limit's 55, the norm is in the left lane 64. Yeah. I love that distinction between law and legislation. I mean, it's so important. It's actually, you know, when you hear somebody say, "Well, we need to pass a law." No, you're talking about you need to pass legislation to do this or that or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but Ed, the first, uh, the real interesting case is to kind of compare, just the kind of look at the transportation industry, you know, and and look at the ICC, the Interstate Commerce Commission, compare it to like the Civil Aeronautics Board. But the ICC, which was established in 1887, because railroads were, <laughs> you know, thought to be incredible monopolies. I mean, we had more track miles. 
in the USA than the rest of the world combined uh, during this time. And there was this discrepancy between long haul rates and short haul rates. The short haul rates were really, really expensive compared to the long haul rates. There were special carve outs for you know big shippers or whatever. Uh, so price discrimination was going on. So, but when the ICC was formed, they looked at these discrepancies, and of course, what did they do? <laughs> they didn't. They didn't lower you know the the short haul rates. They raised the long haul rates, <laughs> uh, which is so typical for a regulatory body. But then, you know, and they had all these artificial prices. So, you know, we're talking price controls again. And in 1935, Congress passed the Motor Carrier Act and gave jurisdiction to the ICC over trucking. Now, this thrilled the railroads because it protected the railroads, not the consumers. And truckers needed a certificate of public convenience in order to operate a trucking company. In the first year that this was mandated, 89,000 applications were filed, 27,000 were approved. And these things were like taxicab medallions. In 1972, they had a value, a collective value of between two and three billion, which is kind of a measure to the loss of society. But it just goes to show you that the, the, the industry being regulated <coughs> loves regulation. And I know we've talked about this before, and I know we're up against a break. So why don't we do that? Uh, folks, I'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Check out thesoulofenterprise.com for full show notes. And now we want to hear from our sponsors. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for us at keyword voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're talking about who protects the consumer more, regulation or reputation. And Ed, this ICC, it just amazed me that, you know, you need a certificate of public convenience to operate a trucking company. 
I mean, a free market is all about freedom of entry and exit, right? And to get, it's just like the certificate, what are they called? Con certificate of needs. Certificate of needs for hospitals. Yeah. 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 Just, it's the same type of thing. It's just absolutely nuts. And then of course the ICC goes on to, because uh, passenger traffic was taking such a beating, uh, it was losing money because of the you know, competition from airplanes and whatnot. So what, what does ICC do with passenger traffic? They nationalize it. And we have Amtrak. Um, mm-hmm. So whether or not you think this protects the consumer, I think is a real, <laughs> real clear to me that this actually harms the consumer. So much, so often that that, it, that turns out to be the case that the the regulators turn out to be not only the the ones who want the regulation, but the w- ones who write the regulation. Absolutely, and we're <laughs> going to talk about that that whole regulatory capture theory mm-hmm. that uh, uh, economist George Stigler came up with. Um, you know, then of course you moved on to 1990. We have the Sherman Antitrust Act. Now I'm not going to talk about that. We did a whole show on it. It's episode 164. Um, for those of you who want to know, know more about the uh, Sherman Antitrust Act, and that's got its own problems and its own, own perverse incentives. Um, but Ed, the Food and Drug Administration, which was established in 1906, was kind of established because of the outrage over Upton Sinclair's novel, The Jungle, which documented unsanitary conditions in the Chicago slaughtering and meatpacking houses, right? In fact, Sinclair said, I aimed at the public's heart and by accident hit it in the stomach, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is kind of interesting. And and just for the record, before the jungle, long before the jungle, the Women's Christian Temperance Union and the National Temperance Society formed the National Pure Food and Drug Congress of 1898. This was a campaign for legislation to eliminate medical nostrums, which were, of course, heavily laced with alcohol. Right. Right. So there's, you know, Baptists and bootleggers, right? There's always some type of confluence of forces. But in 1906, this act was passed, the FDA Act, and it was limited to the inspection of foods and labeling of patent medicines. And more by accident than design, it also subjected prescription drugs to control. But they didn't really use that power for another 20 some odd years. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting. And of course, the meat packers jumped all over this because their products were being limited by European uh, governments, you know, on an import basis because they feared that, well, geez, American meat must be diseased. So they were thrilled to have a government stamp on it saying that this is absolutely fine. Uh, and then, of course, the Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act was passed in 38, which extended government's control over advertising and labeling and required all new drugs to be approved for safety by the FDA. And what's interesting about this act from 1938, they only gave the FDA 180 days to grant or withhold, uh, you know, permission based upon the safety of drugs. They put a deadline on it, which I think we should go back to at, at, at mm-hmm. the least. Um, and then of course you had the, um, what is it? The, um, the litamide episode of 61, 62, right? Which brought in the 62 Keefe offer amendments. And, you know, we did two shows with Mary Ruert on this. Those episodes are 192 and 321. And I'd like to refer people to those because those are fantastic. And she gets into those amendments big time. But I don't mm-hmm. remember her ever her saying anything about the 180 day requirement from the 38 Act. 
and that it was only for safety. I I do do recall her mentioning that because the 62 Act is the one that add the efficacy efficacy requirement yeah. on top of that. And now removed, I, so, specifically removed the 180 time constraint. Removed right. It. That I, I'm not sure whether she talked about that. She, it certainly might be in the book itself, Death by Regulation. Uh, but I, I don't recall that specifically. Yeah, I agree. Let's 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 move back to that. Actually, let's just get rid of it. We have we, we need a total new regime. And, and we've talked a, a, a lot about this on some of our bonus episodes available on Patreon, by the way, patreon.com slash TSOE. The but the the uh, what we we talk we've talked about there is that that the, this whole messenger RNA RNA vaccine is it, it, it's it's a completely different regime for the FDA. How, how is it that I mean, yes, we can prove safety and we did relatively quickly of these vaccines and everybody goes, well, what about the long term effects? OK, point point. Show me the vaccine that has had statistically significant long term effects for number one. Two, we've been using these messenger RNA things for quite some time now. This is so it's not necessarily a new technology. We just use the the COVID uh, genome to use on the messenger RNA. So the technology of delivery has been around for over a decade, I believe. So what we but not what, for what, vaccines, right? Just to clarify, not for the, this COVID vaccine, but it, it, it's been used in Ebola. Was it back, used in Ebola? Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. it, what, was, what the problem yeah. was the problem was the Ebola the Ebola thing died out died out yeah before before adequate testing could be done on it and well, thank God because but the, the yeah. but the point the point being is that the FDA by definition can't react quick enough I heard that it, it literally is once the, the the way their process works that once the the, the submission is done by the company that says, hey, we, you know, because the companies actually do the, their own testing or they outsource it to somebody else and then provide the FDA with the data. The FDA doesn't do their own testing. So they provide the FDA with the data. And that's when the clock starts running. And they're like, yep, we will schedule a meeting for approval three weeks from today. And they stuck to that despite what was going on here with COVID-19. Nobody thought, oh, you know what? This time, let's see if we can move that meeting up a little bit. Right. <laughs> right. Maybe uh, we should do that. So yeah. that's that's the thing that gets me crazy, because like Dr. House said, right, that it's it's all about, oh, no, 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 we must not let results get in the way of our process. process. And, so, and that's what regulation does. And that's what scares me the most about it. So true. I mean, after, you know, we passed these amendments in 62, new chemical new drugs introduced each year fell by more than 50 percent between 62 and the late 70s. And 10 years after those 62 amendments, there was no drug. Can you believe this? There was no drug in the USA approved for hypertension, even though Britain had several. In fact, only one drug was approved between 67 and 72 for cardi for cardiovascular issues. Um, Sam Peltzman, the economist, University of Chicago, has done great work on this and, and definitely concluded unambiguously that uh, the FDA has done more harm than good. And of course, this is documented well in Mary's book. But Ed, I just wanted to point out another thing. Uh, doctors, Dr. Francis O'Kelsey was given a gold medal for distinguished government service by John F. Kennedy because she held up. She was the one at the FDA who held up approval of thalidomide. Mm -hmm. So when you think about those two mistakes that the FDA commissioner could make, right, approving a drug that kills people, or withholding mm -hmm. a drug that, you know, might save a bunch of lives. Um, 
which one are you going to be more biased to do as an institution when yeah, you get clear. this type of you know recognition or think about the opposite way if you approved a drug that killed people what kind of press recognition would you get it would be all terrible and ruin your career yeah of course, of course, I like and I, I read this first in Steve Landsberg and it might not have been him who first proposed this. But let's you know, let's let's pay the FDA employees in in in, in pharmaceutical stock. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I, lo- I love that. I love and that. You say that to people and they're like, well, that's be, be a conflict of interest. I'm like, no, it's not at all. How would it be a conflict of interest? Well, it would be in their best interest to approve something, really approve something that kills people because the stock yeah. would t- would tank. And and by the way, you don't think they have a conflict of interest now? Yeah. But Melton Friedman did a great Newsweek column on this in January of 1973, where he was basically arguing that the FDA needs to be abolished. And a letter wrote, writer come, uh, wrote, um, and I think it was a, some type of scientist or you know, social scientist, and he said, I do not believe the FDA should be abolished, but I do believe that its power should be changed in such, in such a way. You know, he had all these ideas. And... Then Friedman replies in a subsequent column, February of 73, and he called it Barking Cats. You probably remember this. This is phenomenal. He said, what would you think of someone who said, I would like to have a cat provided it barked? He said, you favor an FDA provided it behaves as you believe desirable is precisely equivalent. As a natural scientist, you recognize that you cannot assign characteristics at will to chemical and biological entities, and you cannot demand that cats bark or water burn. Why do you suppose the situation is different in the social sciences? In other words, the institutional incentives built into the FDA are the problem. It's not the people running the FDA. It's mm-hmm. the institution itself and the incentives they face. Yeah, and we're going to talk more about this in a subsequent segment. But I, 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 as much as I say, OK, abolish the FDA, I know that's going to happen, but not going to happen. But what? what I think could happen is we could say, all right, the FDA allows for the approval of safety of drugs and then it's then a decision between you and your doctor as to whether or not you should take be able to take something right so i know let's drop the drop the efficacy requirement especially with regard to vaccines and this is where i was bringing my point earlier because once you prove safety of the vaccine is efficacy is efficacy all that important I don't think it is because you, it, it's safe. Okay, let's get it out. Let's see if it works. If it doesn't, then okay, you still have it's a, it's, it's the same thing that you've got going on with uh, with, with the if the the virus is permitted to to persist regardless of the vaccine. So if you it know, does some positive thing, at least you're going in the right direction. This gets into that debate, Ed, and you've heard this. Um, you know, having an FDA approved store and a non FDA approved store, right, where you can get drugs mm-hmm. and things like that. Maybe the FDA approved store and even the non approved store has to be proven by the FDA for safety, like you said, but maybe not efficacy. Um, the question then, the the opponents of this say, well, but then what's going to happen is. They're just going to they're going to load the non FDA store and they're not going to give a crap about efficacy. They're not going to track it. They're not. And it's like, are you kidding me? The drug company out there possibly selling a drug that doesn't do a darn thing. If anything, the doctors will kill it. They'll just stop prescribing it for crying out Mm -hmm. loud. Yeah, Doctors don't want to prescribe stuff that doesn't work. (laughs) I, I can't understand the people that argue the drug companies, the makers of this thing don't have an incentive to track its progress over time. Of course they do. Mm-hmm. That that argument astonishes me. 
Yeah, it's well, because the doctors are then going to get be on the take from the 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 pharmaceutical reps are just going to come over, give them money, and then they're going to prescribe stuff that people don't really need and doesn't really work. Okay, so now you've got like this vast conspiracy that 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 doctors are in on as well. Well, and I I I get to a certain extent that okay, what where are the incentives? And certainly, yes, there is a financial incentive, and and they're going to be bad actors in any industry, regardless. Absolutely. So the incentives. So the incentives. Yes, the incentive. There are incentives to do things that are contrary to the what are the right thing to do. But then there's there's also this the overall ethical component, and people seem to completely dismiss that when it comes to oh well what, once once the government's involved, then then there's not going to be any kind of shenanigans going on in the background. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> this will document over and over and over and oh, I mean, you could fill books with this the examples of unethical practices, shoddy products, unsafe products hitting the market with a ton of regulation. Mm-hmm. You know, that federal register growing 10 times, <laughs> you know, it's crazy. Yeah. All right. But we're up against our next break. I want to remind you that you can contact Ron or me by sending that email to asktsoe at verisage.com. We do have our Patreon site available now, patreon.com slash TSOE. New and new. we now have merch, Ron. We now have merch. <laughs> First thing out there is some laptop stickers. So to go to Patreon, uh, I'm sorry, go to the, the soul of enterprise.com slash stickers, and you can get your own TSOE laptop sticker. But right now, a word from our sponsor. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're talking about who protects the consumer, regulation, or reputation. And Ed, you know, then, of course, in 38, we established the Civil Aeronautics Board. Can you believe there were 19 domestic carriers? 
in that year that they had that was it 19 how many airlines 19 domestic do, count oh yeah yeah how many airlines do we have today anyway one of the big complaints uh right out of the gate was that the well if you had an intrastate flight they didn't regulate the prices of that so the sfo to lax route say uh was was actually much cheaper than taking uh the same distance flight but that crossed states right that was interstate mm-hmm. and ralph nader filed a complaint about this in 1971 and of course what was cab's response yes, what they it did was to, they raised the price <laughs> of the intrastate flight to match the regulated price of the interstate I, you know this was absolutely predictable <laughs> So, you know, and this is one of the agencies that we did get rid of. And I think the evidence speaks for itself that, you know, we more people fly. It's cheaper than ever. It's safer, safer than ever. Blah, blah, blah. So, you know, then, of course, we had the National Highway Traffic Safety Act, um, uh, an agency established in uh, December 31st, 1970. I just remember the outrage over the Corvair. And I know I was, you know, very young at the time. I was just born. Um, but. This was, you read books about this, it's, it's an amazing thing. I mean, General Motors reacted badly. They hired private eyes to investigate and turn up dirt on Nader and all that, accused him of being homosexual and blah, blah, blah. But the, the NHTSA actually did safety studies on the Corvair. And here's what they concluded. The 6063 Corvair compared favorably with other contemporary vehicles used in the tests. <laughs> After all this outrage... The agency's designed to regulate this comes out and says, oh, everything's fine. And then wow. in 72, we get the Consumer Product Safety Commission. If there's any, ugh, this is the biggest namby-pamby eat-your-vegetables agency you've ever seen. <laughs> I mean, it's unbelievable. <laughs> um, it, it, their main concern is not price or cost, but safety. Um, and, of course, they only have jurisdiction over things that, like they can't do tobacco, they can't do motor vehicles, drugs, food, aircraft, boats. Why? Because those things are handled by other agencies. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, they they um, one of their biggest. Um, well, here's what the here's what their mission is. We, we want to make sure there's no unreasonable risk to the consumer of of a consumer product, and unreasonable risk is not quite a scientific term right it's not objective i mean mm. what's what's a what's the reasonable risk from the um decibel noise of a cap gun that wouldn't affect a child or an adult's hearing right mm-hmm. melton friedman talks about you know these highly paid experts sitting around firing cap guns with ear you know gun muffs on uh <laughs> it doesn't inspire confidence um but their big their big scandal was tris um, they had the responsibility for administering the Flammable Fabrics Act, um, which dealt with children's sleepwear. And the cheapest way to meet the standard was to impregnate the cloth with this flame retardant chemical, Tris. Mm-hmm. And of course, then this was found out to be a carcinogen. And yep. now here's the thing. The government can only make an assessment prior to uh, letting the drug, out, letting the, the product out on the market. Right. And they mandated it. Once they mandated it, everybody does it. It's one size fits all. And if you compare what a market would have done, some manufacturers might have put Tris in their sleepwear. Others might have tried something else. It would have been more gradual and incremental rather than being one big problem all the time for everyone. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the biggest 
problems with this. Yeah, I, I remember that sleepwear that, that my, you know, my mom talking about it. Oh, this is flame retardant or whatever and bring, bringing it proudly home. And then, I don't know, was it a year or two later? It's like, let's throw those pajamas out. Why don't we burn them? <laughs> yeah. Oh, wait, we can't. No, we can't burn them. That's Your it. kids are sleeping in asbestos, you know. Or <laughs> I know it's crazy. Uh, like, like Melton Freeman says, often we're simply substituting government failure for market failure. The idea that the government doesn't fail at this stuff too, what forces does the government have as, at its disposal to find out problems like this that the private market doesn't? Mm-hmm. What are they? Is it is it om, uh, omniscience? What is it? It, it? it must be inherently good because it's government. I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a belief system. That, that's, that's all it is. That because oh it must be that we we've we've elected these people the people who who have elected have then hired the right experts in order to make this this a reality and they only have uh, they're only going to take care of us. I, I my numbers here are not uh, exact, but they're but I know they're in the ballpark. It is my understanding that the FDA has roughly five to six thousand inspectors. Mm-hmm. Like that's right. That they they that they go out. There's five to six thousand inspectors. There's over a half of million places that are subject to these FDA regulations. Do the math. Yep, I have a great story on this, Ed. I have a Do great the math. story. Yeah, <laughs> they can't be. They can't be they all can't. over. So and and it's so it's not it's not due to the regulation that you're the the, the reason why you know McDonald's is safe to eat uh, is is because they don't it's really bad to kill people yeah like like if their like, customers start custom, dying yeah. it's it's really bad yeah yeah <laughs> not a good long term strategy it doesn't produce much ARR no <laughs> no. Um. You know, of course, then we got the EPA, and 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 I remember in 1970, because something about the 70s was a disaster. Um, but I remember reading this in Milton Friedman. He said, you know, in fact, the people responsible for pollution are not businesses; they're consumers. And and that kind of kind of bends your mind around something that's like, you know what? That's right. <laughs> the consumers weren't willing to to pay these costs, right? To pay the price mm-hmm. that justified the cost. We wouldn't have pollution, so let's stop making you know Honda and the car manufacturers the boogeyman, and let's put the blame on where it belongs, us. You know, mm-hmm. we're consuming this stuff. I, I love it when people talk about, oh, I got my Amazon package today. My kids got new shoes, and then they'll do a whole show on the evils of Amazon, and it doesn't, you know, it's like <laughs> really. So, so I guess you're not contributing to that. It's just all the other people that buy from it. Oh, um, when I brought brought up the fact that that we would not have had lockdowns and that that Amazon saved lives during this pandemic, oh, people, wh- how can you possibly make that connection? <laughs> Really? Okay. Do, do you think twenty years ago that we would have locked down and people would have stayed home and that we would have had all of this? No, it wouldn't happen. Wouldn't have happened. So the fact that Amazon existed at all and was able to continue continue to deliver stuff to our doorstep was a miracle that saved lives. Don't give me this. Well, all right. We should probably get to reputation, Ron. But you probably well, have a couple well, more. Well, I, I have one more. I have one more, and then I have something okay. else. Uh, uh, price controls. Just real quick. Just reading, going back and reading Melton Friedman's book from 1980, Free to Choose. Um, 
you talked about President Carter Institute, you know, price controls, right? Price controls are another drastic form of uh, regulation, minimum wages, rent control, blah, 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 it goes on and on. But uh, we got the Department of Energy and they imposed price controls and we had the odd even gas shortages, right? Because of the OPEC yeah. prices. And Carter literally said that we need a massive program to produce synthetic fuels or else the nation will run out of energy by 1990. No. <laughs> 14 years. Yeah, he hit that one. Yep, yep. Well, maybe he was right. It just hasn't happened yet. Um, mm. Anyway, what, what Friedman says about this, you know, the argument that, the, oh, well, the risks are too great for the private sector to do this. That's what the private sector does. It takes big bets, big risks, long-term projects. He, he quotes the Alaska pipeline, which is kind of humbling because it's been shut down, right, or something. Um, but look what the billionaires are doing in space. Don't tell me we don't take big risks. <laughs> now, we're well. They shouldn't be we taking were. those risks, Ron. I, they shouldn't oh, be the, those evil billionaires. They should be curing poverty instead. I know. Every, every, every billionaire is a, a policy failure. I get that. So mm -hmm. here, here's, here's, the, here, here's the way, a great way to think about this, Ed. And this is from George Stigler, who, again, originated the whole regulatory capture theory. Why mm -hmm. do... Uh, companies like the regulatory agencies that regulate them well because they get to capture them and like you said they get to write the legislation and the regulations because they they're more interested than anybody and they're also the experts mm -hmm. of whatever it is they do here's george stigler's thought experiment suppose you want to figure out why a particular regulation passes and the way that it's written imagine the legislator putting that regulation up for auction and people could bid on the terms of the regulation and the outcome went to the highest bidder. Under those rules, it would be clear whose interest is served by a government restriction on freedom of exchange. That's brilliant. Mm -hmm. Throw it open, auction it off. Auction the auction. legislation off. Right. So if you, if, you want an, if you want to be an environmental group and, envi and, and bid on the ability to, to regulate something, then you can you can bid. Who's going to outbid you? Who's going to outbid you? The consortium of fossil fuel fuels. people. Just yes. so the you're evil, aware, they they are going to outbid you. Yep, and and you know the other thing, Ed. It's really interesting to think about. And I think I read this in, in a Ronald Coase book. He he made the argument. We spend a lot of money, impose a lot of costs, uh, regulating these unsafe products and services, right? Like we just discussed. He said, but why don't we regulate dangerous ideas? Why can I go into a library or on Amazon and buy Mein Kampf or Marx's Capital or other books by Marx? He said, these ideas have killed more people than all the products and services combined, all the shoddy ones, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really interesting question. It's an interesting question, but the answer is hashtag First Amendment. Well, of course. Right. But, but, <laughs> but of course, but that's. That's his point. He's saying that products and services are also First Amendment. Are First should, Amendment issues. And, and they should have the same rights and, uh, you know, responsibilities as any other uh, right that we have. The right Fair to point. choose, right? And so I just think that's a really interesting thing. But ideas kill more than products and services. Let's face it. I mean, that's empirically, that's undeniable. Mm-hmm. 
going back to the one of the Verisage laws, there's no good way to implement a bad idea. So, all right, well, we're up against our last break. Want to remind you, you can contact Ron or me by sending that email to asktsoe at verisage.com. We love getting your emails. Keep them coming in. I think we've had two or three in the last couple of months that have been turned into ideas for shows. So we really do rely on you, our audience, to tell us what you want us to talk about, hear about, or even a guest that you want us to have. Please let us know. Uh, this uh, segment is sponsored by my employer, Sage. want to thank them for being a longtime sponsor of the Soul of Enterprise ever since our inception. We thank them for what the, the work that they do. A reminder about our Patreon channel. And then, of course, ratethispodcast.com slash TSOE to, guess what, rate this podcast. And our shout out, lastly, to the, the 90Minds group, need one, hire one at 90minds.com. Right now, a word from our sponsor. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing Hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, we're back on The Soul of Enterprise with our final segment on reputation versus regulation. And Ron, we've dealt with a lot of regulation here. We've yes, bashed we have. it pretty much. But so let's talk a little bit more about reputation. What do you got on that? Thomas Sowell said, I don't have faith in free markets. I have evidence. So here's <laughs> the evidence, Ed. Elements All of right. regulation. And, and let's, you know, let's talk about uh, regulation by market forces, because that's, that's a, I think, a sure. great way to it's a type it. of regulation, sure, to make regular. Yep. Yep. Um, so you have freedom among providers to enter the market and compete for buyers, right? You got to have freedom of entry and freedom of exit. Um, same thing for buyers. They have to be free to buy or not buy, right? Can't. So if you think about all the things that we talked about, the certificates of need to be a trucker, to, to, to open a hospital, you shouldn't have to do that. You wouldn't have to do that in a truly free market. The reputation of the sellers 
and the customer experience spread by word of mouth, especially now word of mouse, right? I mean, the mm-hmm. internet, you know, I don't know if you saw that South Park Yelp episode where everybody in town's a Yelp critic. Oh my, it's hilarious. Anyway, um, even in the old days, the, uh, the, one of the biggest signalers of quality was the department store. You mm-hmm. bought something at Sears and Roebuck or Neiman Marcus and you didn't like it or it didn't work. It fell apart. You, bring it, you get your money back. They had every incentive to scour the world for the best products at the best prices and bring them to you. Um, and they would stand behind them. It, there was no government agency telling them to do that. They were protecting their brand name which is usually of greater value than all their assets combined, inventory, you know, buildings, whatever. Um, there's tor- and that's, that goes to the to, to the apocryphal. Well, actually, I think you say it's not apocryphal that the story of, of was it Neiman Marcus taking back tires? Yes. Or was that Nordstrom? It, 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 Nordstrom. Uh, Nordstrom had bought a store, like a general store in Alaska that they put their, you know, store in and this store in its prior days sold tires and somebody came back with them and Nordstrom said, I'll just give him his money back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was something they didn't have to do. Um, another thing that, that takes care of consumers in a free market, and of course this is government to some extent, but it's the judicial system that they're set up to do, uh, which is tort liability, right? Mm-hmm. People can recover damages if they are harmed and, and it doesn't have to be the court system. It could be mediation or arbitration. Um, there are requirements imposed by insurance companies. So if you want fire insurance or you want malpractice insurance, they have their own processes that you have to go through to get that to ensure quality and safety and all of that. There's I just also- want to say something about the mediation piece because I think you know most people think, well, when when would I ever be involved in mediation? I bet you almost everyone in earshot of this radio show has has been involved in a market based mediation called credit card dispute yeah absolutely that's that's what the credit card company is serving as they're serving as this intermediary to take care of a dispute between you and a provider so it it, that we didn't get the government involved there's no reason to 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 do so because of their power their buying power their the credit card companies have a extraordinary leverage leverage that you as an individual don't but because you are a membership has its privileges, member of American Express, they they can do it on your behalf. And I think that's one of the best examples of reputational power uh, in the marketplace. And and I, I don't know, I wouldn't say maybe a majority of the time, but at least a good chunk of the time, you actually just deal with the company itself and they resolve it in your favor, whether it's Amazon. I recently had a dispute with FedEx that they resolved to complete my complete favor. Um, mm-hmm. which was a disaster. It took a while, but I got to the right person and she just wiped it out. Said, no, you don't know, it's a dime. We screwed up. Uh, so anyway, also with this whole market-based process, unlike government, you get a trial and error feedback loop, right? You're doing things incrementally, but when something happens, you learn about it and you remove the product or you improve it or whatever, or you go out of business. So there's a constant feedback loop. There's also private testing organizations, you know, Consumer Research, Consumers Union, which publishes consumer reports. These these outfits have been around since the 20s and 30s. And Friedman points out that they're relatively small, which means a small minority of, of consumers are willing to pay for them, which shows you that by and large, consumers are probably pretty happy with the merchants they do deal with. There's also third-party certification of products and services like like your mechanic has probably got an ASE certified patch that he wears 
or their manufacturer's certified patches. You know, I go to Acura, get my car done. I see the Acura certification. I see the ASA certification. Sage certification for, yeah, for providers. A- a- absolutely. Ed, you, you back to your uh, FDA inspectors. California growers on their own volition formed Leafy Green Products Handler Marketing Agreement, which pays for their own inspection system. They found that the FDA regulation to be ineffective and insufficient. So 95% of all the leafy green product handlers in California signed up voluntarily. They chip in, they pay for their, they pay for people to tramp through their farms and inspect their stuff. And one of the reasons they did it was because Dole and Fresh Express agreed to participate. And once those two big giants came in, they had to do it. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, they, they would have lost market share to them. So insurance companies have a strong incentive to regulate. They're the founders of the Underwriters Laboratory. Underwriter. <laughs> Underwriter is insurance. They, you know, because uh, I, I don't know if you remember this, but the World's Fair in 1893, I think it was, took the world by storm. And, you know, all these uh, electrical power was dazzling everybody, but they were also causing fires. So the fire insurance companies founded Underwriters Laboratory in 1901. Thousands of companies voluntarily sign up for UL approval. They certify something. It's a, it's an un, unbelievable amount of products and services every year worldwide. And, and there's competing uh, certification. There's competing, uh, you know, testing uh, agencies to this as well um, around the world. It can't. That's the other thing the market does. They would, you know, like we had three credit agencies, right? Remember the housing fiasco? There'd be more. And therefore, the ones that didn't that did a bad job would go out. They would they would exit. They would be you know would go bankrupt. But when it was limited to only three, and they it, all they had to do was go from Standard and Poor's to Moody's, and Moody's would give them the rating that they want, and they knew it. That's one of the reasons that caused the the big short. Yep, exactly. So you know, it, it's it, the least flawed, best available approach to regulation is one that generates an ongoing discovery of new and better knowledge and invention of new and better processes and gives those involved a strong incentive to create value for other people in order to benefit themselves. Um, you know, we think about parents and taking your figuring out the best grocery store, the best church churches aren't regulated. Could you imagine a certificate of need requirement for a church? But why do we have such thriving religious communities? Because we have free and open competition among churches. The ones that don't get a congregation, a flock go out. Right. Mm-hmm. And there's something to be said for that. Yeah. In, in, the, in that marketplace. No, it's a great, great example. So, you know, Friedman gives you this thought experiment. Think about the products and services that you've seen improve the most that you're most happy with. Is it your postal service, your schooling, your railroad? Is it Amtrak? And think about the products and services you're most satisfied with. Computers, household appliances, TVs, radios, you know, even shopping, the shopping experience with Amazon or grocery delivery. Um, The imperfect market may, after all, do as well or better than the imperfect government. Yep. Totally agree. All right. Well, good show, Ron. Thanks for all of dumping all of this on me. I feel like I was just riding shotgun and free riding today. So I appreciate it. (laughs) Well, I was over prepared for this, Ed. So what can I say? All right. What do we got next week? We have David Baker coming on. He is the author of The Business of Expertise, Selling Your Mind, Not Your Hand. So lots of great stuff on positioning and marketing and even pricing. I'm sure we'll get into them with So I'm looking forward to that. Outstanding. I'll see you in 167 hours. 
This has been the soul of enterprise, business, and the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ron Bake. Uh, join us next week, folks, Friday at noon, 3 p.m. Eastern. In the meantime, check us out at soulofenterprise.com. We'll have full show notes up there and some of the resources that we use to prep for today's show. Also, you can contact Ed or me at asktsoe at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. See you next week.